The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Sadvi Bhagawati Saraswati, is an acclaimed author, speaker, and spiritual leader. Initiated into the order of sannyas in the year 2000 by His Holiness Swami Chittanand Saraswatiji, one of India's most revered spiritual leaders, Sadvi also holds a PhD in psychology. She's the author of several books, including By God's Grace and Come Home to Yourself. And her newest book is Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation. Sadvi, welcome to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's such a joy to be with you. Well, I think we're going to have a good time because you and I have, uh, I'm just going to say a few things in common. We're both Jews. Yes. We both love India. We both love Mother Ganga, the Ganges River. We've both been initiated into one Hindu school or another. So I was initiated into the uh, Ramakrishna order Mm, years ago. And we've both had encounters with the Divine Mother. Yes. So let's, let's work with that one. I was very moved by your description of your first encounter on the shores of the Ganges. Tell us about that. Mm. It was the moment that transformed my life. I was 25 years old and I had grown up in a situation, circumstances in which I really had everything. I grew up in Hollywood, hence the name of the book, Hollywood to the Himalayas, and had a lot of opportunity, a lot of privilege, really sort of everything I wanted, everything I needed, everything that in this world people are told you need to be happy, all the things that we run after. And Life in many, many ways was beautiful and fantastic. And yet I also suffered. I had experienced great challenge and difficulty and even trauma in early childhood and had done what so many of us do in dealing with our internal pain, which is we try to do something to make us feel better, whether it's alcohol or drugs or food or sex or shopping or gambling. And we do that and we realize, of course, it doesn't work and it just ends up making us feel worse, but we don't really know what else to do. And so at 25, I had graduated from Stanford University I was in the midst of a PhD in psychology program. And on the outside, everything looked 
really fantastic. And on the inside, I was still suffering. And I didn't, I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust God. I didn't trust the universe. I felt, I felt very unworthy on a lot of levels. I felt not enough on a lot of levels, as though there were sort of something inherently wrong with me. And I ended up in India with a backpack, not sadly because I was on a spiritual quest. I would have loved to say I was, but I just, I wasn't. I didn't even know that that was something available for me, something I was worthy of. And I ended up there because I had agreed to go to India because I was a strict vegetarian. And I knew that when India was suggested as the place for us to travel to, that at least I'd be able to eat happily, that at least I wouldn't be fighting with waiters in languages I didn't speak about the broth of a vegetable soup or something. And Rishikesh was the very first place we went, the city of Rishikesh, right on the banks of the Mother Ganga, right in the lap of the Himalayas. And the very first day after putting our bags down in the hotel, I said, I'm going to go put my feet in the river. And that was really for me all that it was at that time. I didn't even know the river was holy. I didn't know that this was the mother goddess in the form of a river. I just knew I was hot, I was tired, and I wanted to freshen up. So I get down to the banks of this sacred river. And even before I get my feet in, I had this extraordinary experience, just spontaneously, immediately, of oneness and connection and awakening and union and ecstasy and perfection perfection of myself, perfection of the universe, perfection of my place in the universe, oneness with this incredible mother goddess. And I experienced her. I experienced her presence on every level of my being. And it just blew my heart open. It blew my mind. It blew away every sense that I had had of being separate. And I cried and cried and cried and cried. And for the next many, many, many days, even into weeks, pretty much all I could say for a long time was, oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. And yeah, I couldn't even articulate it. I still can't articulate it well. Well, let me let me take issue with that because let me <laughs> let me read something from the book about this first encounter, which I think you articulate very well. The image of the goddess Ganga formed out of every color, shape, texture, and aspect of my visual spectrum. Here she was, and here I was. Yet it wasn't really a her. Rather, it was an all and everything. And I, I was part of that everything. There was nowhere I ended and all began. There was nowhere she wasn't. I stared, eyes open to her form over the flowing river. I had come home. 
that feeling of coming home, as, as I understand it, is not coming home to India, though there could be something about that also. I know that my first trip to India, I, I had this sense of homecoming, but it was a, a geographic thing. It wasn't spiritual. It's just, oh, I love this place. I love the <laughs> smell. I love the color. I love the, the, the noise of it. But it's a, it's a homecoming in, in the sense of coming home to the divine in, with, and as everything, it seems to me, is what you're, is what you're saying. Is that fair? Absolutely. And it's also a coming home to myself of who I was raised in a reformed Jewish family. God had always been something very, very separate. And I wasn't even religious, but that was just the the concept that I had of God as a a being to be prayed to, to be feared, um, to try to placate in some way through what you did or how you behaved, and to experience the presence of the divine in me as me as her, but as her, as me, as all as me was, yeah, it rendered me pretty nonverbal and in tears and just, yes, in retrospect, we can use words like awakening, but at the moment, it literally just felt like I was swimming in an ocean of ecstasy non-verbal, non-semantic, non-intellectual. And I remember thinking at the time, like laughing with myself, there was one part of myself saying, I have no idea what this is. And the other part was like, and it doesn't matter because it's so beautiful and that's all that matters. And coming from someone who was a pretty hardcore academic, that was a very, a very beautiful and transformative experience. And it's something that has stayed with me for 25 years. You know, for somebody who went to India because it was a countrywide vegetarian restaurant. Yes, exactly. You, got, exactly. you definitely got more than you bargained for yes, uh, yes, when you exactly. got there. I, I want to I pick up on the Jewish piece for a moment, only because you know, I, as a rabbi, I can't not ask you about that. Sure. So I read, you know, I read the book, and from what I could understand, your parents were not upset by, by this. Uh, there was, like you just said, you were raised uh, in the Reform uh, denomination of Judaism. I'm ordained in the Reform movement. I was raised in Orthodoxy. But whether it's Reform or Orthodox, like you said, the Judaism that I was raised in posited a God out there somewhere who was clearly masculine, clearly patriarchal, uh, someone who had to be constantly praised, you know, it, it was not a God that spoke to me at all. I mean, I, I moved into Buddhism first in my spiritual quest. What I'm curious about is, without asking you to be judgmental in, in any way, but it seems to me that the Judaism you experienced was spiritually empty rich in form, you know, that do this, do that, all the rituals, but it didn't feed your soul. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 
And by the way, this is not by any means a comment on Judaism itself or even Reform Judaism. It's a comment on the way that I, in my family, as a youngster, experienced it. We went to synagogue because it mattered to my grandmother. I was bat mitzvahed to make my grandparents happy, not under duress by any means. I happily did it. But it was never about God. It was about the family and the connection that I had and that I still have very deeply to Judaism has been about the history and the Jewish people, a lineage, much more so than it ever was about God. And so the experience that I had on the banks of Ganga, people say, oh, you know, did you convert? And I try to explain to them that the, the God aspect of my life had up until that moment remained empty. It wasn't that the you know, Hindu version of God came in and kicked the Jewish version of God out or something like that. It was that I had an experience of God a non-denominational, <laughs> totally infinite, expansive experience of God that happened to take place in a Hindu place while Hindu rituals were underway. But it filled a space in me that had not been occupied. So it was much more of an augmentation than one kicking the other out or a conversion. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. I would be a little stronger in the sense that I think, because I mean, we're talking, what, 25 years ago? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Something like yeah, that? Exactly. And, and maybe that's, it's not that much different today, but I like to think it is, that 25 years ago, God really had no place in, in mainstream Judaism. And, and I would argue, in a sense, that's still the case when we're talking about when we talk about not not the Jewish God who shows the Jews and you know all the all the legends and uh, and the story the mythos of an ethnology of, of Judaism that says oh God you know chose us from among all the people and all that uh, the God you're talking about the God that that uh, you've experienced like you said it's not a Hindu God it's not a Buddhist God it's not a Jewish God or a Christian God it's some other reality that is all pervading. While that reality plays a huge role in Jewish mystical circles, it's not something that is taught in mainstream Judaism. And so it leads a lot of people, Jewish people, to think that there just is nothing like that in Judaism. When I teach, a lot of the Jews who come to my classes, and I imagine, this is a question, I imagine that's true in your teaching, a lot of people who come who are Jewish are coming with the same spiritual emptiness that you experienced. They're not looking to convert. They just aren't being fed on that level by that kind of all-encompassing divine reality. Is that, is that what you find also? It's absolutely true, but I would say it's equally true for the Christians who come. I think it's true in general for those who are coming from a Western Judeo-Christian tradition where they're not feeling the presence of God in them. 
They're not feeling the connection to God in a way that is deep and meaningful and fulfilling. And they're looking for something because our culture these days with marketing the way it is and society the way it is and advertising the way it is, is so full of messages to continue to tell us over and over again in different ways that there is something wrong with us. We're too fat, we're too thin, we're too dark, we're too pale, we're too old, we're too young. We don't have the right model of mobile phones. We don't wear the right brand of jeans. We don't vacation at the right resorts. There is something wrong with us. Now, as a marketing strategy, it's brilliant because if you convince me that I am somehow deeply lacking without your brand of handbag, I'm much more likely to buy it so that I can feel full. So it's a brilliant marketing technique, but the dilemma is that even though we obviously don't buy every handbag or every mobile or every car or every pair of jeans we see an ad for, we do buy the underlying message, which is you are not enough. Our education system is rooted in that. You get A's, you are a good boy, a good girl. You don't, you are, you know, a bad boy, you're a bad girl. We're really raised in this sense of your worthiness to occupy your space on planet Earth is based on what you do, what you achieve, how you rank against others in all sorts of randomly determined categories and systems. And so the overwhelming vast majority of people move through their lives feeling like there's something inherently wrong with them. And the tradition of Hinduism that I have been bathing in for the last 25 years is a tradition that says the very core of who you are is pure and perfect and whole and complete and divine. And you have been created not just by the creator, but of the creator. And that is your truest nature. And to discover that, to realize that, is your truest and highest and deepest calling, dharma, purpose in life. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Yeah, it's such a shame. I mean, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they all have that teaching. Of course. In their, in their mystical core. But it doesn't make it to the mainstream church, synagogue, mosque, and therefore the, the mainstream conventional believer. I mean, we, we could talk forever about why that might be, but it, I think it's just a fact that it, it just isn't taught. I mean, when, when I meet Christians who have no idea who I mean, I guess it's Julian of Norwich or Meister Eckhart or Hildegard of Bingen. And when they have no idea about these great mystics who say exactly the same thing that you're saying, 
it's really sad. And, and on the Jewish side too, if, if they don't know Abraham Abelafia and a, you know dozens and dozens of other Jewish mystics, someone is robbing people of the truth with a capital T that is at the heart of the mystic heart of, of these religions. You write about this, not in that context, I want to shift a little bit, something more practical. But when you talk about experiencing the divine, you say you're, you're in the presence of truth. And then the truth that you're in the presence of, you, you more or less define it in a way that, that's very clear, I think. Uh, and you write near the end of the book, that everything in the universe is pervaded by the divine. I mean, we just said this. Everything in the universe is pervaded by the divine. There is nothing, no one, no place that is not pervaded by the divine. That includes me and it includes you. That was all a quote from your book. Then you move on to talk about mantra practice, mantra japa, the repeating of a sacred word or phrase and how that can I don't know if, if I want if you want to say that can bring you to this realization of truth, but somehow it, it's a, it's an important tool for this realization. And I'd love to hear you talk about the power of mantra and how people might make mantra part of their practice, daily mm. practice. Sure. Well, the practice of mantra jap actually harnesses the power of many different aspects that we already know. So on the one hand, it's the power of an affirmation, a subconscious programming that gets repeated and repeated and repeated. So even just on that most basic level, and I'm going, I'm going from the most basic to the most, to the deepest, even on the most basic level, we know that affirmations work. We know that giving ourselves different narratives, different thought patterns, when the mind is jumping around like a monkey and telling you that you're a victim of this, or you're a victim of that, or the universe is against you, or your identity is wrapped up in your size or shape or color or race or religion or sexual orientation or your history, when the mind is telling you all of that, the power of simply having a spiritual affirmation to remind you that you are not that is in and of itself powerful. However, we then go another layer deeper. The mantras come from, of course, the scriptures they are imbued with actually scientific meaning. And the, in the Sanskrit language, the, the actual meaning of them and the way that the words go together actually has an alchemic ability to transform you. So while saying to yourself, you know, I love you, God. I did this actually before, before Puja Swamiji, my guru, would give me a mantra. He made me wait a couple of years before he'd give me a mantra. I decided that I wasn't going to lose out on the benefit of mantra because I had heard so much about it just because my guru wouldn't give me one yet. And so I chanted, you know, I love you, Krishna. I love you, Krishna. I love you, Krishna for about two years. And it was beautiful and it was wonderful and it was powerful. And yet when the actual 
Sanskrit mantra gets given. There is an alchemic power of transformation to the mantra itself, as well as to the ritual of being initiated into mantra. And the third piece going on to the deepest level is the science of sound. Now, just to orient listeners for a moment, we know that, for example, you could take a whistle and you could blow it, and it could be a whistle at a certain frequency that none of us would hear, but it would make a dog go crazy on the other end of the room. Or you could blow a whistle at a certain frequency on one end of the room and shatter a glass on the other end of the room. That, that, that energetic power of sound is actually something that travels through the universe and impacts the universe we live in, literally like shattering a glass with a high-pitched sound. In the same way, with that science of the energy of sound, the mantras have actually been developed harnessing that science. And so the sound of the mantra itself, in addition to the meaning, in addition to the words themselves, has that very sacred alchemic power to energetically go in and transform you. So for me, the mantra has been an incredible gift. I have used it like a life raft throughout the last 23 years. I've been there 25 years, but it was two years in that he gave me a mantra. And whenever my mind is spinning or someplace I don't want it to be, the mantra is that life raft. It just, it pulls you out of it and pulls you back into the divine awareness. So is your sense that a mantra has to be given by uh, a teacher or can people find them on their own? So yes and yes. Can you find one on your own? Absolutely. Will it have the power to transform you? Absolutely. 200%. Do not not do mantra jap just because you don't have a guru who has initiated you into it. And if you do have a guru or should you come to have a guru in the future, the power of being initiated by a guru into it gives it a whole new level because it's said that when a guru gives the mantra, you actually get the shakti, that energy, that spiritual energy of all of the sadhana, the spiritual practice that the guru has done. It's like, here's a way of thinking about it. Let's say you've got a headache or a stomach ache. Can you go to the health food store and find yourself some really good Ayurvedic medicine for it? Absolutely. Will it help you? Absolutely. And if you had the opportunity to go to a, an expert Ayurvedic doctor who felt your pulse and was able to, through feeling your pulse, understand why you develop headaches or stomach aches and therefore is going to give you exactly the right blend of herbs that you need 
not just to alleviate the symptom of headache and stomach ache, but actually to bring back balance to your system. And so I think about it like that, where they're beneficial anyway, they're powerful anyway. And if you've got the ability to have a guru who actually doesn't, doesn't have to put his you know, fingers on your arm to feel your pulse, who just looks at you and feels your spirit and knows what mantra is going to be the right one for you, that's even doubly more powerful. So do you give mantra? I have. I have. And, and it's not the one that you were given. I mean, no, 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 no. When, of course when, not. Of course not. I have. I, you know, I usually, I usually, depending on where it is and what the situation is, I usually try to bring people into my guru to get their mantra from him. So even even people who are quote unquote, you know, disciples of mine. I would really prefer for them to get their mantra from him just because it feels like whatever power I've got has come to me through him. And if they're with us in Rishikesh and I can facilitate for them to go and to receive that initiation from him, I, I always, always really prefer that. Yeah, my own teacher, uh, Swami Atmarupananda, when I asked for initiation said, you know, he, not from him, you know, go, we'll go to his teacher, Swami Swahananda. And that's, I managed to do that just a few weeks before he died. Uh, and, and he gave me the mantra, um, Swami Atmarupananda didn't feel it was his place to do that. I guess, especially while his teacher was alive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we are just about out of time. This has been very interesting. And I want to end with a commercial. As I understand it, you're, you are the director of the annual International Yoga Fe uh, Festival in Rishikesh? I am. I am. Yeah. So I imagine, and maybe I'm just projecting because I know it's true for me, I imagine lots of people listening to this are interested in yoga, maybe have even heard of the International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh. Now they get to hear you tell why it's the most incredible thing and we all should come. I've never been, but I'd really would love to do it someday. Tell us just a little bit about that and when, you know, when the next one is. Sure, of course. And by the way, I know time is short and so I'll do it succinctly, but just to mention that in my book, In Hollywood to the Himalayas, you will get so much more about Rishikesh and the ashram and yoga and the yoga festival. So don't worry about the shortness of this particular commercial for it. You will, you will be able to, um, to get a lot more of that from the book. And the festival is, you know, it's so extraordinary because it brings together people from all over the world. We usually have people from around a hundred countries. And to me, what's so beautiful about that is we come together to do yoga, to pray, to meditate, to celebrate. And it really is yoga in the fullest definition and the fullest meaning, which is union. And 
It's a week-long festival. It's from the 7th to the 13th of March, 2022. We are definitely planning on being in person in 2022. God willing, COVID permitting, but that's, that's certainly our intention. We were online, of course, in 2021, but we are certainly planning to be in person 2022. And we bring together the top teachers from all over the world. And it's asana, it's pranayam, it's meditation, but it's so much more than that. You know, Patanjali gave us these eight limbs of yoga that begin with how we live in the world, how we live with ourselves, the yama niyam, and then all the way up to samadhi, this divine ecstasy. And the week really, really gives all of that. And, you know, one of the questions everybody asks is, well, why travel to India? I mean, you can learn yoga on any street corner of any city in the world. And there's something very, very, very powerful there. And again, that's that's where we began today. In any case, with regard to the Hollywood, to the Himalayas, that which drew me to India, that drew me to the Himalayas and the experience that I had there. And that experience is available for you. It's available for you, of course, anywhere in the world to let go of that which is holding you back to experience freedom and awakening and healing. But if you actually have the ability to travel to Rishikesh and to stand in the Ganga, for me, the two greatest moments of transformation were the first one that I shared and then standing in the river, literally giving my pain to the river as my guru had instructed me pain of what I had experienced, what I had suffered, how I held on to it. And if you've got the opportunity to actually come there and experience that flow of the mother goddess to be there in the lap of the Himalayas and to do it at a time when you can engage in yoga with all of your sisters and brothers from all over the world, Absolutely, absolutely do it. And you can see internationalyogafestival.org. It's all one word and spelled exactly as it sounds, internationalyogafestival.org, to see all of the details about that. And you can see hollywoodtothehimalayas.com to see all of the details of my new book or just go to Amazon and it's there too. Either way. All right. Well, you certainly got a bunch of commercials in there. I appreciate <laughs> that. And we are going to have to end with that. Our guest today, Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati, is the author of a wonderful spiritual memoir, Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation. Sadvi, thank you so much for talking with us on Spirituality and Health Podcast. Oh, it's been such a joy and such a blessing to really do this with you. Well, you're welcome. And again, thank you. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. 
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at Spirit Health Mag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Mediumship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.